Welcome back to The Filibuster, the DC Democratic Party's podcast where we talk to local and national Democratic leaders about why they are Democrats and what issues are important to them. My name is Charles Wilson, and I'm the chair of the DC Democratic Party. We're excited today that today's podcast guest is a senator from the great state of Virginia, Senator Tim Kaine. Tim, how are you today? Charles, I'm great, and it's really nice to talk to uh, talk to you and, and DC Democrats. No, thank you for being here. We're excited about the conversation. So uh, again, welcome to the, po- uh, the podcast. Um, we start our podcast off the same way, and we ask our guests, why are they Democrats? You know, I sometimes jokingly say, Charles, I became a Democrat when I was in middle school and I realized my parents were Republicans. You know, that was my <laughs> that was my youthful rebellion. But, you know, I grew up at a time, 1958, 1968 were my first 10 years. And what a tumultuous time, the civil rights movement, the Vietnam War, the assassinations of President Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy. Later on in high school, the impeachment of a of a corrupt president. And um, I I had probably through my religious upbringing as a Catholic, uh, a Jesuit Catholic high school education, and my parents' strong example, kind of a pro-civil rights Mm -hmm. orientation, even though I lived in a, you know, very much kind of all-white Catholic community. If I if I met an Italian Catholic, that was diversity, you know, (laughs) because it was all Irish Catholic. But I just kind of absorbed a pro-civil rights um, mentality at the time, especially, you know, watching people like like Bobby Kennedy and Dr. Martin Luther King. And that and that put me in the Democratic camp. And I've continued to be there. The, the parties, you know, over time kind of changed their positions if you look at the long scope of history. But the Democratic Party during my entire lifetime has been the party that really um, captures what I think is the great genius of our country, which is when we do what we promise to do, and we don't always do that, mm-hmm. but when we do what we promise to do, we welcome all to the table. And, and that's who the Democratic Party is. And, and that's why I love being a Democrat. Awesome. Uh, so, so as you know, and we all know, there's a lot going on in not only in the, in the country, but in the world. Um, is there anything right now that you're working on that you're really passionate about? You know, a lot of the projects that I'm working on are, are things I'm passionate about, and I finally feel like I can move them forward with the Democratic Senate, Democratic House, and Joe Biden in the White House. So um, I think uh, we've gotten too sloppy in letting presidents start wars without Congress. And Joe Biden, having served in the Senate for 36 years, understands the executive role, but really understands the congressional role. And I'm working closely with the administration to rebalance war-making power so that, so that uh, executives don't feel like they can unilaterally get us into wars that last a long time without coming to Congress. I'm very passionate about that. I'm really passionate about education issues and particularly career and technical education. I grew up the son of an iron worker working in my dad's shop. I ran a school that taught kids to be welders and carpenters in Honduras. And I don't like the fact that federal education policy and other policies um, put college as the preferred choice and high quality career and technical education as kind of second class Pell grants or other financial assistance for students. We, we prefer college to high quality career and tech. 
And so I'm trying to work with the Biden administration to kind of root and branch, um, eliminate any perceived or actual second class treatment of career and technical education. Um, and that ties into one of Joe Biden's key priorities, which is we're going to do a big infrastructure bill. But I tell you, roads, bridges, ports, energy grid, uh, broadband, that they don't build themselves. And mm -hmm. we're going to have to have a workforce working, you know, good paying jobs with great benefits to build the infrastructure our nation needs. And that's only going to happen if we do the right things to encourage and not discourage that infrastructure workforce. Finally, healthcare. I'll go there. Well, maybe two more. Healthcare and um, healthcare immigration voting rights. We, we've got to take the next step. Uh, Obamacare was a fantastic first step, but we got to take a next big step. I don't think we need to change direction, but let's take another big step in the same direction by letting people buy insurance through uh, centers for Medicaid and Medicare services where they don't have to pay a profit margin or somebody's fancy salary. They can get a really good insurance policy at a reasonable rate. We need to do immigration reform because we are a nation of new Americans and immigration is kind of like the transfusion in the, in the body politic that keeps America young and vigorous and innovative and creative after 240 years. Um, and then it's my hope that this year we, we will restore voting rights. You know, in the, in the aftermath of the Supreme Court's decision in the Shelby case in 2013, and then certainly after the 2020 election, we've seen efforts to really roll back people's voting rights and, and keep them out of the ballot box. We need to be doing everything we can to make it easier for people to vote. I'm so thrilled that in Virginia, we've done that, but nationally, there's a rollback and we've got to go on the offense to make sure we protect and expand voting rights in this country. All right, um, that's a lot to chew on. Um, and if we're talking about voting rights, like, and you talked about how we need to go on the offense, like, how are we going to do that? How are you proposing that we do that? Here's what I think you're gonna see, you know, in the next four, five, six months, this is our top priority for, for Democrats, the voting rights issues, both in the House and in the Senate. Um, infrastructure is a top priority. You know, now that we've done a rescue plan, we want to do a jobs and families plan. But I think voting rights next to that jobs and family plan is the, the most important priority right now. So here's what I think you'll see. The Rules Committee in the Senate would have jurisdiction over the two key voting rights bills, the John Lewis bill, which would kind of fix the, the preclearance process that the Supreme Court struck down in Shelby. And then the bill that uh, Congressman Sarbanes and my colleagues, Jeff Merkley, Amy Klobuchar, and others, I'm a co-sponsor, to, to eliminate all kinds of obstacles in people's way, to eliminate dark money in politics. So it's both voting rights and corruption reform. Um, I think you'll see that bill get marked up in committee sometime in the next month or two. Mm -hmm. And then we'll set the stage for a really vigorous floor debate over the most, I think, momentous issue of the time. And you'll probably see this issue on the floor of the Senate for some time, because I just don't think we can afford to stop on this until we've got it passed. It's just too existentially important. So first thing we need to do is make sure that every Democrat, 50 out of 50, feels very, very comfortable with this bill. And if there's any nuance or detail that makes a Democrat uncomfortable, then we should try to solve that problem so that we have a bill that all 50 will support. And then we need to challenge our Republican colleagues. Hey, you guys used to be a voting rights party. You know, when the, when the um, 15th Amendment was passed to eliminate bars to voting based upon uh, race, 
that was during a Republican Congress when we did the 19th Amendment to guarantee women the right to vote. It was a Democratic president, but Democrats and Republicans both supported it. When, when we did the Voting Rights Act in the 1960s, Republicans in the Senate were more supportive than Democrats. And when we expanded the franchise to let 18-year-olds vote, it was a Republican president, Richard Nixon, at the helm. The Republican Party had a tradition of being a great voting rights party, but about the age of President Obama, they just did a 180 and they quit supporting the Voting Rights Act and, 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 and started to embrace rollbacks. And so we need to challenge the Republican Party to go back to their roots and be a pro-voting rights party again and get this passed. And, and that was gonna lead me to my next question um, about the, you know, the quote unquote gridlock uh, yep. that you find. Why, why are the Republicans so not, not for this? Why, you know, why yeah, yeah, bluntly, I think, I think the Republicans have realized that greater participation weakens their chances of winning elections. And rather than retool their ideas and strategy and messaging and choice of candidates to appeal to the American electorate of 2021, they've decided to narrow uh, who can vote and appeal to a subset of the electorate. That's ultimately driving into a, an alley or a cul-de-sac that is going to be a problem for them. They've been able to successfully use those strategies to some degree, but they should really retool their party to appeal to the current American electorate rather than a past American electorate. And at some point, there will be within the Republican Party, I'm confident of this, a, a movement of some who want to do just that. Mm -hmm. We're not seeing it yet. Um, and I'm a little bit surprised at that, that they continue to cling to a shrink the electorate strategy. But uh, we can't let them do it uh, because it's not just about elections. It's about the, you know, the fate of the small d democracy. You can't have a meaningful democracy with all kinds of barriers in people's way that make it hard for them to participate. All right, awesome. I know we have you for a few more minutes. I wanted to touch base on uh, President Biden's infrastructure plan. Um, yes. And that's the next big push. Um, can you talk more about that and what should we, we should expect? Sure. So the way to look at um, the, the American Rescue Plan that we just did, I call that, you know, emergency relief. That was ER1. This next bill is ER2, economic mm -hmm. recovery. You know, the between seven and 10 million people are still uh, out of work because of COVID. And we need to rebuild the economy, but not rebuild it the old way. It's got to be much more equitable. It's got to have growth that's sustainable, not boom bust. So it, it needs to be a sustainable uh, economy and an equitable one where we can use economic growth to reduce economic disparities, not to widen them. Um, an infrastructure plan can do that. Uh, we need to rebuild the traditional infrastructure, you know, road, rail, port, airport, um, public transit. But we also need to look at things like green energy, electricity grid, and broadband. Because if we've learned one thing, and we've learned a lot, but if we learn one thing during the last year of COVID, we've learned it's great to be able to do this, mm -hmm. but you can only do this if you've got high quality broadband and a, and a device that you can afford. And too many either low income Americans or Americans in rural areas don't have the ability to stay connected to this 21st century um, technology that's now a necessity. So um, the nice thing about um, infrastructure is, look, the Chamber of Commerce wants to do it as much as the 
AFL-CIO. And every Republican governor and mayor I talk to says, do a big infrastructure bill. The prospects for doing something that can have bipartisan support off the Hill and hopefully on the Hill mm -hmm. are, as, are as good in infrastructure as they are in any other issue. Awesome. So we're at the end of our time, but we always allow our guests um, an opportunity to give some parting words to our listeners today. Um, is there anything else you want to leave us with? Two, two things, Charles, for DC Democrats, a thank you and a promise. So the thank you is thanks for helping us in Virginia. You know, when, when I started in state politics, we were redder than red. And so often DC and Maryland Democrats would come across and phone bank in Virginia or work the polls or help us out. And you've seen Virginia go from redder than red to now we Democrats have not lost a statewide race, presidential, federal or state since 2009. It's almost remarkable, but DC Democrats have played a big role. So thank you, I promise. I'm a strong supporter of DC statehood. It is an ele elementary issue of civil rights and justice. And I will not be satisfied and I will not rest until we make that happen. Um, it, it is very connected to the voting rights, obviously, the, the voting rights issue that we're gonna tackle. And I, I see it within our grasp for the first time in my life. I, I can't predict the hows and whys and whens, but I have a feeling I'm gonna see it during my time in the Senate. And I'm, I'm gonna be there working with so many who've worked for so long to make it happen. Well, Senator, thank you so much for spending your time today on the filibuster. Uh, you're always welcome to come back, um, and we really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Charles, thanks for asking. Take care. Bye-bye.